Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is Ariel Marks. I was actually really excited for this interview, and it was one that I had been hoping could happen for quite a while. I first heard Ariel's score for Shiva Baby earlier this year, I think in April, and it really blew me away. Even though it's not a horror movie necessarily, it really made me feel sick and anxious and tense. All the things that a great horror score would do. So it easily became one of my favorites of the year. So then to have a chance to talk with Ariel was just really great. Not only do we cover Shiva Baby, we talk about some of her other works as well, including her recent contribution to the anthology American Horror Stories. And then of course on top of that, we just broadly talk about her work, some of her interests in film and film music, and well, by now you know the deal. Now you can find more about Ariel on her website, and find her on social media, and she seems to have a steady stream of scores and solo output coming out, so always keep your ears open. And of course, for me, you can always find me on social media as well, and keep a lookout on my website for more and more interviews and other write-ups. I've recently gotten a couple guest contributors to write a few things, and that's been really exciting, and I'm always looking for more. And if you keep your eyes open, you might see me make my first guest appearance on another film music podcast. More information on that to come. But in the meantime, sit back and I hope you enjoy. Ariel, I'm so glad you're able to join me today. How have you been? I've been really great. Yeah, I've been actually enjoying the heat. It's been nice. (laughs) How about you? I'm doing well, too. I would say I'm not enjoying the heat. but (laughs) Yeah, it just is an excuse to go other places, I think. So that's... that's... (laughs) See, see cooler places. So that's what I mean. Uh, see, I, I figured for you, you just throw the air conditioning on and it gives you an excuse to stay in, record, write music all day. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, the AC would be hard, though, to record around. So, you know, it's it's good to have a work-life balance. It's true. I mean, and I know that you have like a lot of stuff coming out and that's come out. So how do you actually maintain that balance? Because I think it can be easy for a composer to basically work from dawn till dusk every day of the week. Yeah, I mean, it's always, I think every composer or every artist is trying to struggle, you know, is struggling with that to some extent. Um, I do work really, really long hours and I'm just used to it. But your body kind of tells you and your mind kind of tells you when you need a break. (laughs) Um, So I am mostly a workaholic. But when I do feel like, okay, very simple tasks are, are harder or just, you know, something's not coming to me quickly, it's really good to just take a break and come back and then you're just refreshed and and more creative after that. So that I've found to kind of listen to that when I absolutely have to. <laughs> so what are some of the things that you do to to get refreshed? Is it anything? You know, I, I know some people, they'll have a solo career, for instance, and they jump to that and it at least gives them a break from the film music. Is that sure. something similar for you? Because I know that you actually released an EP. Yeah. So is that similar or, you know, is it sometimes just getting the hell out and doing something different. (laughs) Well, I think it's two things. So if creatively you're feeling stuck, yes, absolutely. That's a great trick is to kind of shift gears and go into either a different project or something for yourself completely related, uh, unrelated to film. And so for sure, that has been, when I wrote that album, it was highly necessary for me to kind of split up my other projects and put all my effort into, into something that was, you know, totally differently inspired. And then I really love like, you know, a good hike or a good swim or something to just remind your, you know, get out of your, your bubble and your work for just a little bit and to 
orient yourself in the rest of the world and then come back and it, it, it works a lot faster. Or being creative in other ways. Um, for instance, like I have a side hobby of doing pottery. And so I really love like still being creative, but not necessarily, you know, and listening to music and learning continually. I just think it's good to kind of step outside every once in a while. Every once in a while. You mentioned that you listen to music as some of the some of the time off that you have. What are some of the things that you listen to? Are they ever film related or is it totally different as well? Yeah, I mean some of my go-tos to just reorient myself in what I love is Chopin, Stravinsky, Ravel. Um, I really love Johnny Greenwood's work um, in music and Mika Levy and um, Elmer Bernstein and Ennio Morricone. And then it's nice to, you know, um, Nico Case I love as a singer. You know, I just everything. I draw inspiration from everywhere. So, yes, I love to immerse myself in the film music world, but it's also important to kind of remove yourself from it because we we make certain choices based on film narrative and it's it's really important to think about just music alone sometimes so it's helpful to listen to all of it yeah i bet so i guess would that be kind of how you describe some of your inspirations or some of the things that got you on this path into becoming a, a film and media composer with just like this big assortment of music from basically across the centuries well Yes, but I would also say my biggest inspiration for getting into this is just my craving for uh, collaboration. My first instinct as a musician was never to be a solo artist. It was always to collaborate with others, either like being in a group ensemble setting or being a composer and writing for other people. But mainly I felt kind of the loneliness as a composer just writing for writing's sake. And I, I loved working uh, with a collaborator in some way. Um, so early collaborations were even with myself, with my own artwork, just creating a soundtrack for a drawing or a shadow box or an animation that I made or like early, early, early on. And then I, I realized how much I loved the music being led by some sort of narrative or storytelling. And so it just kind of blossomed from there. But yeah, it was really just this hunger of, of wanting to have the music be part of something bigger and not just for listening. So, you know, museum exhibits and dances and environments and all, you know, there's all these way, all these things that I explored before I really um, narrowed into film scoring. And it's just, I think the greatest joy is just feeling like you're contributing to something greater than your own, your own thoughts, your own mind. And it's really, it's so rewarding being part of a creative team because you really do become like family. You're all pushing, you know, all ushering this baby out into the world and, that kind of shared sense of commitment is really lovely. That's so cool. I think that's obviously the idea of film music and, and really any aspect of working in film is collaborative. That's just inherent to it. But I don't know if I've ever talked with anyone who's said that the naturally collaborative aspect is one of the reasons they got into it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's, and, and you know, some of my closest friends are, are people that I've, that I've worked with professionally and, um, it's, it's just such a special privilege just working so intensely with creative minds. So yeah, that is for sure the first, um, the first instinct, but it was a really great exercise for me to then go away and write my own work, um, something from my own heart. And that was also very unnatural to me at first is because usually I'm, I'm influenced by, you know, like principal photography of the film or even shots of the film or a script from a film. But for this, it was just kind of the concept of the album inspiring me. And that came from me, too. So it's a bit more vulnerable just uh, just producing something on your own. And so that was a really great exercise, too, which I really want to do again soon when I have a breather. So, yeah, I think it's 
really lovely when composers can balance both of those aspects of their lives. And I do find like everyone who has put out their own solo work, ultimately they get work because of that solo work. It's another aspect of yourself you're showing that you'd love to be paid attention to. And so therefore the next gig can come from that solo album. And um, that already happened with me um, mm. for Rebel Rebel Hearts, the, the documentary that I did for, that went to Sundance last year. My solo album was what kind of grabbed the ear of the director. And so it, it felt it felt good that it was kind of already working for itself in the way that I had hoped. So that's super cool because I was like, from the listener perspective, you have no idea how a composer is getting their gigs, how the next one comes in. So first off, it's awesome to hear that being able to show another side of yourself lends yourself to more jobs. I mean, it makes sense. I think it's also really fun hearing those and actually being able to, like, if you followed a composer for a little while or heard a lot of their film work alone, and then you hear that and it's like, oh, I didn't even know that this is something that they did or something that they were capable of. I think Danny Elfman had released maybe it was a right. music for a ballet a couple of years ago, you know, like three, four years ago. And I listened to that and I was like, oh, I didn't know that I <laughs> did this. And it's just like, it's, it's so fun. Yeah, exactly. And I think most of us just end up following a certain path that, you know, just kind of builds on itself. Like we become known for certain palettes or aesthetics or directions and, and hopefully it's something you very much love. And in my case, I definitely have loved kind of the directions that I keep being asked to, to produce in. Um, but it is a way to just say, hey, that's not everything I do. And, or, or even to say to yourself, hey, that's not everything I can do. <laughs> and to challenge yourself to, to write something completely different. So, yeah, it's, it's just muscle building and, you know, experiments with yourself as well. I will say, talking about your, your sound, like the, the directions that you often go in. I do really enjoy how a lot of your scores feel very organic and authentic. Like they don't sound like they're created from a sample library. That's that's something that I've appreciated. I think since the first work of yours I heard, which was Shiva Baby earlier this year, six months ago or so. Yeah, even I'm getting my <laughs> I'm getting my years mixed up too. Um, yeah, I believe it was in April. But then you know we were due to premiere at South by like 2020 and so it's been a long it's been a long all of these these past three years have kind of blended into each other but um but yeah that was I really 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 value live recording when it's necessary or when it's asked for you know and when you're working with in you know the electronic sphere that's that's less of a need but um I always find whether it's myself on the recording or any other friend or colleague or you know I'm working with a larger ensemble you just cannot beat the effect of having human performance on it. And I, I just crave it so much and I really never feel um, samples pass in, in my book for what I'm trying to do. Um, and I think sometimes you can endanger your creativity because they are limited in techniques. And, and so it's important to remember that when you are with a live musician, they don't just have to play what you wrote. They don't necessarily have to play what your sample libraries can do. So to always remember that there's this larger world of techniques and expression that are beyond sample libraries. So I think that's where most of the, at least that I appreciate the most of the magic of, of scores that I love come in from the, you know, the human expression. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that that's probably the biggest complaint people broadly have about them. But I do appreciate that a lot of the time with uh, with time and budget constraints, sometimes they're, they're necessary. And so, I mean, with those in mind, how are you able to consistently have 
live players or live recordings? Is that something that you'll typically do only when the direction of the narrative calls for it? Or is that something that whenever possible you'll you'll try to get in to have that sense of authenticity and magic that comes in from it? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously when it doesn't call for it, I would never push push a player on something that didn't need it but you know if the budget is teeny tiny I still find ways to I'll have a soloist or have you know a single musician coming and adding color to it or even myself it just changes everything it changes the ideas that you come up with and especially if you bring a musician on either yourself or someone else early on in the project certain performances can inform certain cues and therefore kind of lead you in a different direction it's definitely mythical these budgets that kind of used to be ubiquitous where orchestral recordings were very very easy to come by because budgets have shrunk and especially in the indie world i think it pushes you to be a little bit more creative in terms of getting that same sound but with a different approach and so how can you sound big without having the resources you traditionally would need that lends itself to experimenting with different techniques of recording and layering and arranging and you know different insights that sometimes solo instrument can sound larger than an orchestra with a certain type of performance or emotional expression to it so I think budget-wise being forced to think of things kind of a little bit non-traditionally I think has been really valuable and and that you can to know that you can get quite a large sound without an enormous amount of money which is what I think most of us are grappling it with at least for some of our gigs. Is that a side of composing that that you enjoy or is it more of an an obstacle that you have to get over? Well it's both. I think if for instance the temp and the direction of the film is very very does that have have that large orchestral symphonic sound and you don't have the budget to make it that way and that but that really is the vision and direction of the film then that can become a little bit more of an obstacle but also a challenge and oftentimes I'll always bring in a quartet and layer them on top of samples to get have the grain of of human expression but also have the width and the the volume of samples and I and I you know you kind of learn I've learned over the years how to combine those in a really successful way but it's no I mean I I think it's um it's always exciting. Like parameters are always where you find really interesting and unique solutions. I'm kind of just used to it at this point. Like I I know it's not going to be what potentially it needs to be. And so it's always about finding the magic solutions and kind of smoke and mirrors of it all. That does make sense. And I think especially now it being so known that you're typically not going to have that massive budget that it isn't a surprise getting into composing for film or TV and realizing you have to do these creative solutions. So it makes sense, and I think it ties into what you said earlier of the parameters forcing you to get even more creative. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, when you're writing for an orchestra, there are certain, because it's such an old tradition and an, an ensemble, a tried and true ensemble, there's, there's so many, we know exactly how to write for it and it'll sound beautiful. But when you have a, a smaller ensemble or a, a set of instruments that you are not as familiar with as an ensemble together, it just does force you to make arrangement decisions and compositional decisions that are just a little bit less straightforward, which I think is where some of that, you know, that playfulness and adventurism can come out. That kind of makes you wonder if that's one of the reasons why you so often get these really stranger creative scores coming out of smaller indie projects, 
because of that need to find a solution to having a short timeline and not having a lot of money. I mean, I think that that is part of it. And that, and then certain narratives are calling for, like Shiva Baby, when I was working on Shiva Baby, there was no temp on it. Um, and Emma knew she wanted a, a klezmer-inspired score. She also knew she wanted tension, but there wasn't a comp for it that she knew of and um, or that the editor had worked with. And so that was clearly a film that could take very 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 little melody it was all texture and all tension and layering of of extended techniques and so in that instance you know we would never have wanted or used uh, a traditionally larger ensemble the intensity of that score came from it being one or two instruments layered and layered and layered so yeah i mean i think it's a combination of budget constraints but then also that becomes they are therefore unique and then therefore that becomes what is wanted. So it's all kind of a snake eating its own tail kind of thing. But I, and it's always really exciting to hear something new and unexpected. Um, but it's also refreshing to kind of to hear more traditional approaches too. both are enjoyable. And I'm glad they still exist in our scoring landscape. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it seems like a paradox to say, but if every score was getting unexpected and experimental, suddenly that would kind of make none of them like that. So it's nice having that balance of more traditional scores and orchestral scoring. And I know a lot of people wish that there was more of that, but you know, like we've we've been talking about the issues about that. So yeah, I, I love having that balance too. But I'm glad you mentioned Shiva Baby because that's a, a score that I had, I'd heard it probably, you know, three or four months before I ended up seeing the film. And like your score actually put me off watching it for a little while. Because I, I listen to it, and I think it's like it's like twenty two minutes or something, and I'm so glad it's that short because it's just like it's just like being anxious for twenty two minutes straight. Yeah, and I'm like, I I don't even know if I can watch this movie because God, if it's anything like this, I'm just gonna be curled up. And luckily, it is a you know an, an awkward, tense, anxious film that, like you're saying, using one or two instruments really mirrors that intimacy and intensity right but i was able to get through it and like i really enjoyed it both the film and the score so that very much made me happy yeah well that and i think why the score worked so well in that film is that it was of a singular point of view but the film it is not a horror thriller it has certain elements of that but it's such a comedy as well and i think the juxtaposition of the score and it being so narrow-minded in its approach tonally at least on its own i can completely see why why you reacted <laughs> that way but in the place together with the film there is a balance of comedy and of horror and and the horror of you know being being with one's family and facing uh facing one's life choices and and just having the spotlight on you it is a hard listen because it is and it was and it was also anxiety producing to record too <laughs> um and to listen back to and to mix and all of it but i think you know we really dialed in with the film of what um it was just coursing through danielle's veins was, was what this this film was i mean this the score was and so I, I was really pleased to kind of stick with that one point of view and with that, you had mentioned the the klezmer being something that kind of needed to be used in it, at some, like to some extent at least. But other than that, like not having a temp or anything, what was the approach to scoring it? Having that pretty 
blank slate otherwise to work with. Sure. And so, yeah, I mean, that was an early idea early on of, of Emma wanting something klezmer influence, but ultimately these techniques are not related to klezmer music at all. I mean, they're just, it, so that kind of, that idea of, of that, it was certainly an inspiration and something we explored a little bit, but ultimately it just became its own thing. And the approach to scoring it was very, very improvisational. Nothing was written out. Nothing was really thought much ahead. It was very much like pass after pass after pass after pass after reacting to dialogue and visuals. You know, and then a pretty heavy editing pass afterwards and, and you know, removing and adding and yet another pass after that. But it was really interesting because I was just consistently improvising with, with those takes. So it was really natural and organic and there's certainly no sheet music for it. And I would never want to tra transcribe <laughs> any of it either. Um, but yeah, it was really natural and just reactive. Is that something that's normal for you or was it really just like the nature of this film in particular that called for that improvisational approach? Yeah, super. I mean, to this extent um, of kind of 100% improvised was definitely because that was what the, the film called for. There's certain, certainly always improvisational aspects of each uh, score. I can't think of anything that where there wasn't, but there's definitely varying, especially if something's going to be recorded. You obviously need to have a plan of transcribing what you wrote at some point or, you know, very much writing with the intention of it being very neatly transcribable and orchestrated. So I think, yeah, it's just about what the end game is and, and if it's going to be, you know, start and stop and in your studio. And if you'll or if you if you're sending it off to other people, you have to write in such a way that that you can translate it. I'm curious then to, to kind of stick on this track for a little bit, because sure. I don't really hear about improvisational approaches that much i mean i guess like to the extent that you know, you're you're sitting on the piano banging out keys to like try to figure out melodies and themes or you know, if it's like a jazz your score or something and you're playing with with the group and seeing what happens but for this when you're saying improvisational is that like you just playing and over and over and just seeing what happens how did the improv come about so when like specifically with shiva baby i gave emma a library of i don't know 50 100 i don't remember how many sounds i recorded but different techniques on the violin she knew she wanted something that would punctuate and something sharp so you know immediately staccato and pizzicato and other techniques and bartok pizzicato but I also wanted to show her these other gestures that were possible on the violin that were also very short and the cello that were also very short and kind of in that same world of punctuating music. And then I also did kind of longer gestural techniques to kind of give her the whole tour of the instrument of what was possible. And these were all kind of non-melodic gestures. They were just an <laughs> um, extended technique sound textures and then she went through them and kind of chose and highlighted which ones she loved and so I knew to kind of stay away from vibrato I knew to kind of stay away from very melodic gestures and to really stay a lot more in the textural kind of non-melodic even non-tonal textures and so that you know she helped me narrow down what techniques I would be using and that kind of gave gave me further parameters so it kind of guided my improv I knew I would only be using certain kind of textures and then it was just pass after pass after pass I mean I literally I'm, I got probably each scene took like you know between 10 15 passes and layers of of thinking it through and then again extended editing processes so it's like you know liking it to um 
a freedom of thought, you know, writing experiment, and then you go back and you edit it. And that's, that's the final draft of it. I was never thinking that what I was recording would be the final draft. It was just to get these sounds together and, and, um, and then we were just editing them together afterwards. Ultimately, we just kept pushing it scarier and scarier and more tense and more tense. So there were versions of it where it was a little more playful and a little more fun, but then, you know, we kind of peeled those elements away and it really ended up being more, more intense. And as I said before, part of me is not happy that that's how it came up, but like really, <laughs> I love it. I love, I love listening to something and getting that type of visceral gut reaction of this is just sound at the end yeah. of the day. Like it's just sound put together that creates a you know giant knot in my gut. It's just like so cool when something has that kind of extreme effect. <laughs> there was one moment I think that was the most fun was this big, it's a long sequence, kind of three quarters of the way through the film. And on the soundtrack, it's called Anxiety Attack. But it's a really, really tonal shift and kind of commitment to this to this soundscape. Um, but there is a moment where a song is sung diegetically with the actors and the score kind of you know starts to coalesce into something more rhythmic and supportive of the song. But yet it's not melodic in any way. So, you know, Separate from the song, you, you can't quite hear what it's doing, but what was so satisfying about and the way it was mixed, and I give huge credit to how it was mixed and how it was sound designed as well. It, Hunter Burke, who did that, it was just so rewarding to get to kind of support even in an auditory way, the song that was happening on screen and just that it became so much part of the DNA of the anxiety and the design of that. So I, I just loved it. I love doing it. That's awesome. Shifting gears a little bit to something that's more recently come out and sounds what 100% different is your work on the third episode of American Horror Stories, the fairly new. I don't know. Is it an anthology spinoff of American Horror Story? I don't. I don't know exactly, exactly. how how it's framed, but I I think that's right. Yes. And so that was cool. That in a way it's similar to talking about your EP, where it's something that's very different from at least what I had been accustomed to you doing. I had read the premise of it and then had an idea in my head of, okay, this is what it might sound like, and then you watch it and it's a completely different, far more electronic-based sound. It's always fun to hear those different approaches and those different skill sets that a composer has. Sure, yeah. I mean, that was that was a total blast and a real thrill and honor to be part of that team and, and to work within that that genre and that family of, of creators. And so that was, that was really fun. And, you know, not to spoil any of the content of the episode, but it's, you know, it's very much about the influence of a film on those who watch it, both in the past and present. And so it was very important to have a very strong melody that was consistently weaving its way and warming its way into the characters' heads and also being diegetic on, on the film too. So that was really, really fun. And, and working with electronics is also really rewarding and interesting in terms of the width of effects and and changing and modulation that can happen and how you can start with a single sine wave and, and end up with something you you would never be able to pinpoint. That's very, very exciting about about that world as well. And again, it's all about just editing and sound shaping. And it's, I mean, it's it's not that different from writing with acoustic instruments. It's another source and like arranging principles are still the same in terms of high and low frequencies and and you know how to prevent mud and how to you know 
the elevation of a melody because it's most present and or it's the the brightest sound or you know it's kind of these same traditional techniques you learn with orchestral composition would be you know, are really applicable to electronic music too just in terms of how you think about sound and how we hear things so i love i love that palette as well and that project was was very very fun and all about energy and melody that's a really interesting point because i think a lot of people just hear the sound and generally you're electronic and I I do kind of hate that phrase because it's so absurdly broad but how electronic music and orchestral acoustic music sounds so different and so I think there's an inherent belief that like well everything about them has to be different right so it's interesting for you to say that yeah they're just different sounds at the end of the day they work the same all the principles are the same so it's like it's cool to hear that yeah i mean again it's just all about you know the certain principles of mixing or i mean of course it's very different mixing an acoustic ensemble to it would be to an all electronic score but the the principles of how a piece of music comes together and the roles of each sound and you know the, a motor a bass a melody a, a pad uh, you know all of these things are, are they cross between both genres so yeah it's it, it i mean it's they're they're very very different worlds um and very very different traditions but i don't think composers have to box themselves in just because they're not necessarily because they're more literate in one than the other um i think there are a lot of similarities in terms of how to approach it well it's kind of, it's the same thing as you might be more literate on a piano than on a flute, but like it doesn't mean you're not going to use flutes. Exactly. Unfortunately, like not everyone thinks that way. I think it's more. F- I think that's more a symptom of fans than actual composers. Mm. But uh, it's always a little annoying to see. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. I did actually find it really interesting that you were able to have melodies and motifs weaving their way through the entire time because I think the the episodes. 40 42 minutes kind of that standard hour-long tv form that's not a lot of time to work with recurring melodies and themes and so how did you manage to to fit that all in sure so there was you know there were certain again there are motifs for certain characters and certain themes and uh, you know narrative themes um and so i mean that's how it grows i mean that you know again it's like Yes, it's only 40 minutes or 50 minutes, but that's three quarters of a feature film. And, you know, a lot can be done in that time. It was mainly attached to character. And so, you know, certain, and I, again, not wanting to give away too much of the episode, but, you know, the creator of the film had his own theme. The film had its own theme. The effect of the film had its own theme. And this kind of reuses of, of the themes also were narratively related. So it's all, it's kind of, you know, a traditional technique of just recurring thematic material when it's tied to a certain element so it it happened pretty seamlessly with this episode i would say and and yes like the thematic reign you know i wasn't working with with 10 different themes or 12 different themes or trying to you know there's certain times when if there's too many iterations or the music is there's just too much content you kind of lose the effect of thematic recurrence right and so it's it's kind of important to keep it simple and and refined so you can feel that effect of a theme and again especially when something's 40 minutes and it isn't wall-to-wall sound if you have 10 themes it's like how do they even go in there exactly right that makes sense i'll stick with your path and not not try to spill anything either but like the premise of of this is watching a film that supposedly drives the viewers crazy you get that in like the first 
five minutes. So I'm not not spoiling anything. With that as the premise, like, did that give a, a particular pressure to like try to also create something that's gonna be really scary or have a really visceral effect? Or did you like, well, you know, that's just like the plot device. I'm gonna not ignore it, but like keep going and approach it as as you would otherwise. Sure. So part of it was calling back to um you know, older films like The Exorcist of using kind of subliminal images and and sound to trigger kind of involuntary responses in the in the viewers. So um, it was certainly part of the genesis of those themes. I also knew that there was going to be it was going to be, you know, very heavily and beautifully sound designed. So I knew that a lot of these elements were also going to be at, you know, being in the sound design realm. And so what became more important with the music as we went along was it being more of an earworm type of repetition and a melody that continued to evolve and work, work its way into the episode and into the ears of the viewers, etc. So, yeah, it was more so kind of the uh, repetitive exposure of it versus certain subliminal textures that I was adding where that did kind of come more through in the sound design. You know, you're also working as a composer, you are working with a team. So it's not just your music that's playing. It's also the sound design. It's the dialogue. You can't be doing and lifting all of those weights at the same time. So, you know, kind of, and it's, it's nice to kind of work with or be in communication with what the sound team is going to be doing, because you have to make sure that you're you're weaving and creating your music in a way that isn't going to make it feel like it's oversaturated with what the sound designers are trying to do, you know, and they're all kind of complementing a singular vision. And so it's, yeah, in this case, it was very much more about the music being the earworm and the hypnotizing melody versus the sound design that was much more about the horror of it. Yeah. And so is that something that you basically knew almost right off the bat from being in communication with the sound team, or is that something that developed over time? That was just, that was a, a directive and kind of a creative decision that was made, you know, pretty early on about these certain, these certain elements, these certain frequencies, these certain devices are probably going to be taken by, um, you know, that they're going to be explored with more on the sound side and that this is what we need from the music. In other scenarios, I've also worked very closely with a sound designer. So they, you know, I'll be sending my music back and forth. On a feature, you generally have a little bit more time. The TV timeline is a bit more compressed. So um, there wasn't a lot of time to kind of send back and forth and layer in that way with each other. But we knew very much what the other one was going to be doing. Um, So to kind of intentionally make room. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And comparing it to working on features, I mean, you already said that you you have less time in TV and that's just kind of how it goes. Did you really see any other notable differences working between a a series or an episode and a feature or is it really just like a you know standalone episode like this is like you said really just a one half of a feature length film like the mechanics of how they're made and the timelines of the finishing process are different so you kind of have to work in a different way in some in some ways um but generally they're the same the approach is the same in in, in a longer standing uh, series where you know you have 10 episodes or 5 episodes or 25 episodes the arc is much larger, so you know that your thematic material can kind of grow in, in a much slower way, in a certain way. Whereas, you know, in, in a feature, you have 90 minutes to 
to do what you're going to do. Um, and so in a way, it's a much more accelerated growth of your themes and, and it's closed at the end. Um, whereas episodic television is it's the drive-in for American Horror Stories. That was its own kind of independent episode. It, it didn't continue into the next. Right. And so in that way, it was kind of like a feature film. But when you are working on TV, the end of the episode isn't the end of the story. And so kind of and not having in a way your music is is not you know starting peaking and concluding in the same way it would with a film so it's it's just a kind of a slower burn approach in terms of how you're composing that's actually really interesting and it's not something that i really thought of that you have all this room to kind of build themes and and have them evolve and you know evolve with as the characters do it as the plot does but i guess one aspect that i'm curious about now is like a a showrunner or the writer's know where all of that's going to go both within a season and assuming a show is not going to get canceled if they have in their minds it's going to be five seasons long like they broadly know what's going to happen across those but you as the composer don't so are you ever thinking ahead like trying to predict what might happen or where a theme might might go depending on how the scripts are going to end up or are you still just building as it goes yeah i mean so for instance i I'm not sure if I, I know of a composer who's been given scripts for multiple seasons, but generally you're you're given outlines or ideas, mm -hmm. if not the scripts, for a, a whole season. So you you understand where things are going narratively. Um, and I'm working on something right now where I know how the theme needs to evolve, devolve, um, based on what I know is going to happen. But yes, so generally you can have these ideas pre-production of you know, of, of how something will evolve, but ultimately it's just changes when it, when your picture is in your hands. But yeah, having that insight into, um, you know, with an outline or with episode uh, summaries or the script itself, it is helpful and insightful to be able to at least vaguely map out how these themes will evolve. Okay, that's interesting. And yeah, because, you know, most of the people that I have on here are composing for media broadly, but we always focus on film. So I'm always curious to learn more about shows or composing for documentaries or composing for video games, which is something that is, in my mind, a whole different world that I don't know anything about. So it's, sure. and it's neither a lot of do fun I. to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you're at a really interesting point in your career now, like especially in the last, it feels like six months, where you can look at your IMDb, for instance, and the first... I don't know, 50 entries. It's just this barrage of short films. It's something that's really common with a lot of composers, especially now. Like, you just work your butt off composing every short you that comes your way. But then, like, Shiva Baby comes out earlier this year, and, yeah, obviously it's not, you know, a blockbuster or anything, but had a lot of critical acclaim, real indie darling, and then Rebel Hearts just came out. Then you have this episode of American Horror Stories, which, like, you know, American Horror Stories are massive properties like how are you feeling about things i mean this last several months has been crazy trajectory are you looking to like keep it going or are you hoping to stay more in a indie you know low mid-budget realm where are you where are you seeing things <laughs> so i would say like this entire trajectory my entire you know professional career at this point has just been one step in front of the other and i think you know this industry does work in non you know, unexpected ways. Like you just never know when something will hit or when something will resonate or, you know, when a certain thing will become an indie darling. You know, like these things, it's 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 very hard to to predict it all. And so I, you know, of course, 
I would say I just have a very open mind and it's one foot in front of the other. And I've been so, so, so grateful for all of these amazing projects that I've been working on and that like even in the midst of a pandemic, we've been able to get them out the door and I've been really excited. And I'm very proud too that my work is spanning from narrative to documentary to indie to studio. And it's been really, you know, those all have those, their rewarding aspects of them. So I would say I'd just love to keep my feet in in those worlds <laughs> and to keep of course to keep going up but i just i'm i'm excited by the trajectory and i also want to stay very humble about what comes next and to just be very grateful for the path that i'm on so again just one foot in front of the other <laughs> but i'm very proud and very excited and it's a really exciting time i'm, I'm feeling very inspired cool and i don't know if it's if uh, if you're able to talk about anything that you have coming up on the horizon, or if or if it's still too early, if everything is uh, is hush hush at the moment. Unfortunately, it is. But you know, I'm I'm working on a series and a couple more features. So again, I'm very excited that different media and different um, different approaches to media. So it's it's moving along, and I'm yeah, I'm very excited. Cool. I'm I'm excited too. I feel like. I've been watching your career growing, but at the same time, like I only really it's only been since like April. But it's cool to see. It's cool to see like someone continue to grow, to continue to have great opportunities and great things coming out. And then one of the nice things of streaming services, like there's a whole bunch of negatives. One positive to something like Spotify is finding out about your more recent things and then going and listening to what's come before. Sure. Getting like a broader picture built of your palette and where it might reach out to next. Thank you. Yeah, it's... um. It's a wild ride. I'm super happy to be on it. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, I uh, I didn't even plan for that, but like, I think that's a perfect note to wrap things up and end them on. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Great to talk with you. Yeah. And thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. I'm glad that we were able to finally get something scheduled after a few bumps in the road and yeah. me forgetting when we had things uh, scheduled in the first place. <laughs> it's all good. It is all good. <laughs> Thanks for being flexible too.